Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, I have the happy and yet unenviable task of preaching to you from a passage that everybody in this room probably thinks they know backwards and forwards. And maybe you saw this woman at the wealth and you're like, all right, the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other, blah, blah, blah. We know all this stuff. Well, I I know that sometimes when we see a familiar passage, um, it's easy to tune out. And I'm going to ask that you would stay truly with me. I believe the Lord has led me to certain things this week that surprised me and I think will refresh and encourage your heart. But he's also laid a pretty heavy burden on my heart regarding this passage and the ministry of personal evangelism, which this passage really speaks to. It's a burden that you'll understand and I hope you'll share with me. It has weighed heavily on me since I began preparing the sermon, and I want to share that burden with you in the Lord. So Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well near uh, the, the town of Sychar is one of the most familiar accounts in all of the Bible. It's a story that revolves around one of the most fundamental human drives, and that is thirst. You know, there are a lot of other human drives that can be easily ignored for a few days, but thirst is one of those urgent, deep, fundamental drives that you cannot ignore for very long. And uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 gives us at least a little clue into what the nature of the thirst of the human soul is when it says that God has put eternity into men's hearts. Now, that's not gender-specific. What he's saying is that God has somehow deposited something called eternity into the human heart, which means that we all have this inexplicable longing for something that that is beyond what the world can offer us. And people who have had all that the world has to offer will always affirm this. I've tried everything, and yet I'm still always hungry and always thirsty. There is something in me that longs for more than this world contains. I believe that living without Christ in our world, especially in our country today, is a little bit like being adrift at sea. And the irony of being adrift at sea is that the most urgent crisis for the survivors of a shipwreck is not hunger or the weather or the elements. It is dying of thirst even though you are surrounded by more water than you could ever drink. You can scoop a bucket into the ocean and drink all day long and your your thirst will never be quenched. And I think that's what it feels like spiritually to live in the United States of America without Christ. And so this story of the woman at the well, she embodies this universal human thirst for something more than the earth has to offer. And Jesus, in this encounter, says to her, and he reveals also to us, that he is the only remedy for this undying thirst. There's enough in these verses for me to develop an entire sermon series. I, I, just, I was amazed how rich these 42 verses are. But I, I was going to end up going for like eight hours, and, and I don't think any of us, including me, wants that today. Uh, I, so I, I feel like the Lord has led me to key in on certain things this morning. And so what I'm going to do is focus on one aspect of the encounter Jesus had with this woman, and then explore with you 
some of the aftermath of that encounter. What happened after he and this woman met? Okay, and so that comes from the last few verses of this passage. And the first point in this message, I, I, did, I, I wasn't too clever in that. I just said what it is. It's a finger in the wound. Now, doesn't that language just cause you to cringe? Have you ever had an, a, a, an injury, an open source, something, and someone accidentally touched it or you brushed against something? It hurts to put a finger in the wound. And yet that's actually how this story kind of starts out. Jesus begins this encounter by asking this woman for some water. That's normal. He's at a well. He's been walking on dusty roads. He's thirsty. So he says, hey, lady, give me a drink, please. But then somehow through the course of conversation, he ends up revealing to her that the water from this well can quench your human thirst, but that he has water to offer that if you drink it, you will never thirst again. She is mystified by this, but compelled nonetheless. And at the end of that encounter, she's begging him. She says, sir, please give me this water, which leads to eternal life. Give me this water, which in the end um, will quench my thirst forever. Look what it says here. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen to the woman's response. I mean, this is like out of Evangelism 101, the textbook on perfect scenarios in evangelism. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then Jesus does the most inexplicable thing. I mean, he's got her right where he wants her. And if I were teaching on evangelism, I would say, and the next thing he said was, why don't you kneel? Let's pray together. I want you to receive me into your heart. But he doesn't do that, does he? At the height of her openness and response to him, Jesus goes, hold on a second. Before we go pouring this eternal water, you need to do one thing. Go home and get your husband and bring him here to me. Now, he knows everything about her. He knows full well that this is not an easy thing for her to hear. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Listen, even if you're not a religious person, most people in our society would agree if you have had five husbands or five wives in the past, something is a little off in your life story. That is not a goal to which we aspire or teach our children. Someday, little Johnny, if you're really good, you can have five wives in a row. We don't teach that because somehow that's not a story of victory and conquest. It's a story of brokenness and failure. Now, let me ask you something. Why, at the height of her openness in responding to him, would Jesus take the most sore spot in her life, the source of all of her shame and pain, and stick his finger right in there and twist it around? Why on earth would he do something like that? I've pondered this question all week because... It goes against the grain of everything we teach about evangelism. Hey, avoid the the big potholes. 
Don't touch the hot spots. Don't kick people in their, their deepest wounds. Be positive. Talk about the wonderful life we have. Talk about how your marriage improved. Talk about how your health improved. Talk about how your finances improved. Talk about all the ways that Jesus coming into your life has made life better. So this is a violation of what we teach about evangelism, but it's being done by Jesus, who is evangelism. How do we reconcile this confusing thing? And here's what I believe this is all about. Jesus is not being cruel here. He is sticking his finger into her deepest wound for a reason. Because if she does not go there first, she will never appreciate this water he's offering her. She needed to see that out of her deepest pain and emptiness, out of this deep thirst, she has attempted to quench that thirst with the lesser water of the affections and attentions of men. She sought to find her hope her identity, her worth, and having men marry her, pledge themselves to her, take care of her, love her, have relations with her. And in all of that, one after another, she could never find a man who could quench that deep thirst in her. And as a result, instead of finding fulfillment five times in a row, all she found was deeper scars and a shady reputation in town. Do you realize that there's a reason the woman happens to be at the well at the sixth hour. The sixth hour in Jewish timekeeping is about noon. It's six hours after sunrise. It's at the height of the desert sun. There's heat everywhere. Nobody goes to collect water at noon. Jesus happened to be a weary traveler, so he stops at the well, and he shouldn't be expecting to find anyone there, but this one woman alone is gathering water. Do you know why? Most women in the village would have gathered and, and shared gossip and talked to each other around, the, around 5 p.m. in the cool of the evening when the heat is gone. And they would have this little girls club out there and they would catch up at the water cooler, literally, um, talking about what's happening in the village. Well, for this woman, it would have been very painful and awkward to be with all the other women in town because she had something of a reputation she was known as five-time Nancy, I guess, or something like that. She was the woman who had that history that everyone kind of clucked their tongues at and knew about. They would avert their eyes. They would judge her very openly. And so she chose to weather the heat at noon in order to gather water in the privacy away from the judging eyes of the other people in town. And Jesus comes upon this woman, and he exposes her shame to say, that thing you've been trying to feed all your life, I have something now that will finally satisfy you. Every one of us has been trying to feed that thirst with something. Some of us honestly believe, even after we met Jesus, that true happiness will come from financial achievements. True happiness will come from getting better at golf. True happiness will come when my children make it into Harvard. And on and on it goes. And we have been gulping gallons of this lesser water and are perplexed that each time we drink, it never touches that deep part of us. And we keep walking away with more collected disappointments and failures than satisfaction. 
In order for us to know that the water Jesus offers, the life Jesus offers, is the answer to our deepest longing, we have to first deeply confront the truth that every lesser water we've chased has left us empty and thirsty still. Now, I think it's good to be compassionate and sensitive. I am by nature a somewhat compassionate and sensitive person. Some people would say too compassionate and too sensitive. I don't think that's true. But, but here's the thing. I'm not advocating being a jerk. But I am saying this. Sometimes we are too actively skirting around the central pain which will open people's heart to Jesus Christ. When you see a crack addict sitting against the wall, strung out, you do not say to that person, listen, wouldn't you like to have a job someday? Wouldn't you like to find a nice young man or woman and get married? And No, that is not why they're leaning back there because they're single and jobless. There's something much deeper and this pathetic state they're in summarizes their lost cause in trying to quench their thirst. And if you bypass the biggest part of their story, how will the good news of Jesus ever appear to them to be good news, the satisfaction for their deepest, deepest longing? You have to be exceedingly wise how you practice this. Jesus was a pretty smart guy. But what I'm encouraging you to do is don't put off forever addressing that deep, deep thing, which is the heart of so many people's stories of brokenness. I see a second thing here in this encounter, which is so important to us in thinking about evangelism, and that is that people in the world are more ready than we think. There's this little saying that Jesus repeats, do you not say that there are four months and then come the harvest? Actually, it's not a proverb or a story people would say. It actually means that it was probably around December and in four months the harvest would come for them. And what he's saying there is, don't you guys, aren't you fond of saying, yeah, we'll get to that later. People aren't ready. Eventually, they'll come around. This eternal postponement of the moment of decision. And Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. I love when Jesus talks like that. He's saying, look, you're looking at the wrong thing. I need you to pay attention to me. Lift up your eyes and see. And see what? That the fields are white. For harvest. This is in fact where our church draws its name. You know what it means when it's white for the harvest? It means that the crops have all sprouted. They are ripened for the picking. Instead of just green shoots, you are seeing ripe fruit everywhere. And Jesus says it's so easy to presume casually that the whole world is disinterested in the gospel. That people today don't want to hear about religious and spiritual things. That no one in our world will give Jesus the time of day. That's easy for us to say because if we believe that, we will be discouraged from ever standing up and speaking for Jesus into the world. It's easy for us to excuse our inaction in the gospel if we believe that we're doing everyone a favor by not shoving it down their throats. Nobody wants this. And so why would I stand on a street corner and shout it? But Jesus says, if you would join me and just look at the world around you, don't make casual assumptions Don't be lazy in your observation. Look and see. And what you will discover every time you really look into the matter is that people are more ready to meet Jesus than you could ever imagine. Now, there's a a distinction between open and ready. 
Not everyone will appear to be open to the gospel, but God has been working in people's lives and they are ready for the gospel. You know what? You know who he's saying these words to? He's saying these words to the disciples. You see, in Jesus' day, it was taboo for a rabbi to talk to a woman. In fact, anytime you saw a man out in public talking to a, another woman without her husband being present, that was immediately interpreted as a shady little situation. I don't know what's going on there, but it ain't anything good, I can promise you. It'd be a little bit like if you saw me and some woman that wasn't Jeannie laying on the grass in a forest preserve, looking at the clouds, arm in arm, talking. And I could say to you, oh, you know, I was teaching her about Romans chapter 8. But you'd be like, no, I don't know. That just didn't look right to me. That scenario immediately raised suspicion in my heart. Well, that's exactly the situation here. They go off into town to buy some food. And when they come back, here's Jesus sitting there having this really heart-to-heart talk with this woman. And not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. And what on earth is this lady, this shady lady doing at the well at noon? Come on, Jesus. Don't you, are you so naive? You don't know what kind of woman this is. And they're really alarmed. And all they can think about is, what kind of woman is this? And she's going to corrupt our master. Sensing their hearts and how much they had missed the significance of what they had stumbled upon, Jesus said to them, open your eyes, look up and see. All you see is a shady Samaritan woman with a reputation. All you see is my reputation at risk. What you don't see, but what you need to see is a woman desperately in need of salvation. What you need to see is not just a woman who fits a category or a label, but a human being who is so far from me and is dying of thirst and is desperate to come home. That is what you need to see. I think this is one of the reasons that there's so little evangelism going on in the United States of America. Is that we are so quick to join the unbelieving world in looking at other human beings through the lens of categories and labels. When what Jesus says to us is there are only two kinds of people on this planet. The kind that know and walk with me. And the kind that my heart breaks for because they need to come home. There are, there's no other kind of person. Have you guys been following the news lately about tiger blood, Charlie Sheen? How many of you guys know what's going on with Charlie? Read the, read the newspapers, watch the, He is losing his stinking mind on public television. He has become so completely full of himself, he's saying crazy stuff like, I've got tiger blood. I'm on a drug, and that drug is Charlie Sheen. And if you took it, your brain would explode, and your children would be looking at me. It's just crazy stuff. i got Adonis DNA. He's basically believing that he's a god, and the whole world, the media, we're just having a frenzy of judgment towards this man. And I must admit, I watched a good 45 minutes of footage of the self-destruction of Charlie Sheen this week, and I joined the rest of the world initially in this gloating, self-righteous judgment of this man. And then midweek, as I'm preparing this sermon, the Holy Spirit just pounded me in the face. He said, who do you think you are? Has it occurred to you to pause and pray for Charlie Sheen? I was like, what? What, Lord? Pray for Charlie Sheen? Who does that? And the Lord was impressing on my heart, how dare you make fun of a human being who in a very public spectacle is spiraling down into self-destruction. Who do you think you are? And i got to confess to you, I bowed on the floor of my office and I prayed with all my heart 
Charlie Sheen. Do you know how weird that felt? I mean, I got this ad in my email this week. XM Sirius Radio started a channel called Tiger Blood Radio so they could make fun of him 24-7. And the more I thought about this, I said, there's something so wrong with our world and there's something so wrong with me that I almost was about to tune into that station. And now I won't. Because this is not a man we're supposed to be laughing at. He symbolizes what's wrong with our hearts. We look at people and we don't see what we need to see. The truth is that Charlie Sheen is a man in need of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Now maybe praying for Charlie Sheen is about the farthest thing from your mind. But all around you right now are people who are so ready to meet Jesus Christ. But if you look at them only through the lens of their behavior, through what they've done to you, for you, against you, you will never be the one to speak the name and the good news of Jesus to them. They are more ready than we think. And that's because God has been very active in preparing their hearts for him. Let me give you a third observation. It's about sowing and reaping. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor, and you have entered Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What Jesus is saying is the way evangelism, the harvesting of human souls works, is that there are some who plant the seeds of the gospel, and others who bring in the harvest. That means that all of us, if we stay in line with this analogy, have a role to play. If human souls are like a crop growing in a field, well, let me tell you something. Only God can make the crop grow, but crops don't gather themselves and walk into the barn. There is still, nonetheless, a role for us, his followers, in the process of bringing people to salvation. That is not a burden, but it is one of the greatest privileges of Christian life is that we will experience again and again the joy of our own salvation when we are present and participating in the salvation of others. I think part of the reason Christians in America are so disillusioned with our faith is that our own conversion story is such a long-distant memory that the power and the joy of the gospel is just a fading echo in our hearts and our memories. Every time you are present when a new believer comes to Christ and is marvelously born again, it will, it will light a fire in your heart that will not be put down easily. Jesus speaks of both sowing and reaping as labor. That's so important to understand. One sows, another reaps, but both are laboring. I think we have learned about friendship evangelism in America, but have understood it wrongly. To us, friendship evangelism is lots of friendship, and maybe by accident evangelism might happen one day. 
That is not how friendship evangelism was ever taught or framed by those who taught it. But it's the way that an unfaithful church has received it. Friendship is easy. It's fun. The evangelism part I could put away with an asterisk as a footnote. Maybe the situation will present itself. But I'm not comfortable with that ministry, we say. But Jesus says planting the seeds of the gospel is not the same thing as having a pocket full of seeds and walking through a field and some spill out of our pocket. Hey, I'm planting seeds. That's an accident. There's nothing intentional about that. Your big Bible sitting on your desk is not ministry. You're wearing a Christian t-shirt on casual Friday is not just the totality of the ministry you were called to. I know it's a start, but that's probably more of the work Jesus is doing in you than to the world. It's about you learning how to own your faith and be outed. That's probably what that is. We need to go beyond simply being public Christians and hoping everyone's paying attention. Planting is a very intentional process. It is digging a hole and putting a real potent seed into that hole and covering it with dirt. And I want to encourage you, if you identify more with the ministry of sowing than reaping, I want you to be encouraged. It is a valid ministry. Some of us are wired to be sowers and not reapers. We like doing marketing, but we're not the salesman who closed the deal. I hate talking about evangelism as sales, but it helps us frame the issue a little bit. And some of us are not good at that moment of calling people to a decision. But if you are going to be committed to the ministry of sowing, you must understand that it is a spiritual labor. It is not an accidental coincidence that someone saw my giant ESV study Bible on my desk and said, I'm going through a divorce. Can I talk to you about that book? I would love for that to happen. And once every 25,000 years, it actually happens. But I believe that over the course of human history, ever since Jesus walked the earth, people have come to salvation because one person led another person to the Savior. You know, I've done a lot of traveling and speaking. And uh, often when I go somewhere, I will ask people in the crowd, just, out of, just to satisfy my curiosity, how many of you have never led someone to the Lord? And, you know, I'm not exactly George Barna or George Gallup, but, you know, I, I think based on my amateur statistics, I would have guesstimated that around 90% of the Christians I've met in America have never, ever led someone else to saving faith in Christ. Now, I was, I was preparing this sermon. I was thinking, that's just my personal narrow experience. Maybe I walk amongst a lot of unfaithful people. That's got to be a little high. And so I started doing some Internet research, because that's where all the true stuff is, is on the Internet. But what I found, search after search, was that the most reliable figures seem to say 95% of Christians... I had undershot. I thought I was embarrassingly uh, pessimistic about our ter- the church in America. It turns out that 95% of Christians have never led someone to the Lord in the United States. Now, I don't know if you can hear that and just go, oh, it's another statistic. That statistic crushed my spirit. It's been bothering me all week. I'm so agitated about that statistic because I wanted to be proven wrong and I was proven inadequately right. If 95% of us have never led someone to Christ, 
Either we are all very, very ineffective sowers or something is really broken in the church. Now look, I'm, I'm not trying to get you guys all to look at the floor and hope that this sermon ends soon. This is not about guilting you. Aren't you all so troubled by this? I'm not scolding anyone. I mean, look, pastors probably meet the fewest people in Christ because we hang out with all you Christians all day long. You're out there in the world mixing it up. Do you realize that this should trouble us? That even those of us called to be sowers need to be a lot more intentional about sowing because that statistic is really messed up. I've been reading a book by Bill Hybels on leadership this past week. And uh, there's one nugget that really stood out to me as worth remembering. It was in a title he called Make the Big Ask. And he was talking about all kinds of big asks for fundraising, for other things. But he said, my favorite big ask is that many, many times over my life, I have sat across a table with someone and said, I have been talking to you about Jesus, loving you in Jesus' name for a long time now. Tonight is the night I'm going to ask you to make a decision about Jesus. That's simple. You may receive him, you may not. Our friendship will remain intact nonetheless. I will love you no matter what, but I am not going to put it off any longer. I believe that tonight is the night I need to invite you to decide. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Do you know that in Jesus' name I have loved you? And that that love and his forgiveness will set your heart free. It's so simple. And when he writes it, I just go, could have had a V8. How come I haven't had that conversation lately? Why do we make it so dramatic, so ominous, so difficult to imagine ourselves doing when all it is is one person sitting across the table from another saying, today is the day that I'm going to ask you to make a serious decision in your life. I believe that more of us are called to be reapers, and we have fallen asleep in the light. And I hope that that will trouble some of you enough that you will know through the Holy Spirit that God is talking to you right now. This is just for you. Because right now in your life, there are people whose souls are cultivated, and if someone will call them to that decision, they will walk right into the arms of Jesus Christ. Come home. Guilt is the worst motivator for ministry. But somewhere along the way, we have to reconcile our lives with the words of Jesus in Mark 8.38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then I, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It's a very simple verse. And what he's saying is, do not let a poorly defined ministry of sowing and friendship evangelism mask the fact that deep down inside, the real problem is, we're ashamed of Jesus. We're ashamed to be labeled as his people. And we're afraid of being rejected by people whose opinion of us matters a great deal. And if our ministry of evangelism is a way of masking our shame of Christ, 
then we must wrestle rightly with that problem in our spiritual life. Let me give you one last observation. And that is that Jesus is the message. See, this woman, and this is why Heath drew the picture that he did. I, I, I pictured a discarded, a hastily cast aside water jar because this woman was there to get water. And it's kind of important when you don't have modern plumbing. Water is life. But the minute she heard and encountered Jesus, she threw the jug aside and she ran straight into town. Now, that's curious. How powerful an encounter must that have been that she ran headlong into the midst of the townspeople who had been the source of so much pain in her life? Why would she run to them? Why? Because somehow meeting Jesus reformats the hard drive of the human heart. It makes you do inexplicable things. You are so excited at what you found that you start telling everybody even the people who still have their hands gripped around the dagger that's in your back. It's amazing what a conversion experience will do. The most active evangelists are new believers, not veterans. That's so counterintuitive. And listen to the message. She did not stand in the village square and expound on the true identity of the Messiah. What she said instead was so simple. She said, hey, everyone, come and see a man. That was her message. She wasn't trying to argue for a new morality. She's, she wasn't trying to convince people that, that creation is better than evolution. She wasn't mired in debates about abortion and same-sex marriage. What her message, her testimony was, was come and see a man who has changed everything. He told me everything I ever did. Now, the way she phrases that cracked me up a little because I'm picturing all these cynical townsfolks going, Lady, that's not a miracle. I could tell you everything you ever did. It's the talk of the town. We all know your history. Ah, but see, here's the difference. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. The difference is while everyone else could have recited her biography with judgment and self-righteous smugness, Jesus told her everything she ever did, and she never once picked up in his demeanor a hint of angry judgment, but rather that he wanted so badly to save her from that condemnation. Bad people don't need you to remind them that they're bad any more than you need me to remind you that you're bad. Do you like it when you come to my office for counseling and the first thing I say is, dude, that's so messed up. What the heck were you thinking? Are you stupid? You know, if, you, if I say things like that, your heart is shrinking, closing, guarding. We don't need to be reminded because we are the first people to know not all is well. Jesus names her deepest sin, but not with condemnation, but with an aim to save her from herself. I think this is freeing for us because our message is not some complex theological construction. The reason so many of us stay silent is we don't want to be embarrassed by being caught off guard by questions we cannot answer. Let me tell you something that should comfort you. No one on earth... Whoa, I'm getting excited. No one on earth has all the answers. I told my small group this week, you could be so proud to be American, and you probably don't even know what the 10th Amendment 
to the Constitution says. You think everyone who's a detractor of Christianity has all the answers to the things they believe? They're more aware of what they don't believe than what they do believe. And if you're so afraid to engage people because they might stump you, well, who on earth has all the answers? I'm going to tell you right now that at the start of the Christian journey, you will have far more questions than answers. And you will go to the grave with many of those questions not answered. But you already know enough to know that Jesus loves you and you want to walk with him for the rest of your life. You already know enough about him to follow him and to trust your eternal salvation to his promises. Our message is a message about a man who has God and who has made every difference in our lives. It is a testimony about an encounter with a Savior. You will spend the rest of your life wrestling and coming to grips with the apologetic questions of our generation. But none of those answers are prerequisites for salvation. The only message you need to begin a journey with Jesus is that I once was lost, but in this man and his offer of grace, I am saved, I am found. And so she says quite simply, come and see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And look at the result of that testimony. They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Here's how the passage ends. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Can you imagine that simple line bringing salvation to an entire town? And why do we complicate it so much? Maybe because if we complicate it, it gives us every reason to never start. But the truth is, it's a very simple story. We are only called to stand and testify about what we ourselves have seen. And how many times from this pulpit have I said to you all, you are not called to be an expert witness with all the answers. You are called to be an eyewitness of the one you have come to know. You don't need to know everything, but just share what you already know. It was enough to get you saved. Why is it enough for them? Our message is not complex theology. It is the message of Jesus. And when we speak of Jesus, the net result is they're not pulled by our story of personal transformation. They are drawn to Jesus who changes people. Listen to this. They were drawn and saved because of her testimony. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, directly to the source, they asked him to stay with them. And he did stay there for two days. And listen, many more believed because of his word. No longer relying on secondhand information. Because we made much of Jesus, people came to Jesus directly. And he did the real hard work. He told them about life in Christ. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's profound. That rocks me. If we will make much of Jesus and simply call people to come and meet the Savior who changed our whole life, who saved us, I promise you, you will be used by God to draw people to Christ. 
And isn't that the language we use anyway? We lead them to Jesus. Jesus will save them. Can I encourage you with this? Whatever reason, I'm not going to call it an excuse. That would be too cynical and judgmental. But whatever really solid reason you have for neglecting the lostness of people around you, I pray that God would wake you up this week. He'll help you understand that this is really the primary ministry of every Christian. It is to make much of Jesus and see lost people come to Christ. And I'm calling you out as a church. I want to renew my own zeal and commitment to this ministry. Let's shatter that ridiculous and shameful 95% figure. Just shatter it. Let's kick it and break its tailbone. Let's make that number go away. What right do we have to grieve over the sliding moral state of America when 95% of us have never led someone to the Savior? What kind of country do we expect to live in if people don't have Jesus? I think it's not an unreasonable goal a vision even, that by the end of 2011, every last one of us will have been marvelously used by Jesus to plant the seeds of the gospel of Christ or even to be there at the moment when another human being is eternally changed and saved. And that that experience will start something in you that will rage and burn like a holy fire. That's the invitation for the remainder of this year. May God, through his Holy Spirit, be faithful to that challenge and call us out of our slumber to be faithful to speak the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to join with me in a responsive prayer. I know that there are people in your life that you really love deeply that somehow, I don't know, you've had so many talks with them and they're so cold and hard-hearted and somewhere along the way you've come to just accept this person is just too hard of a nut to crack. They're never going to come to Christ. I can't picture the day when my sister, my son, my brother, my friend will bow their knees before Jesus and be saved. Jesus says, in the midst of that kind of frustration, lift up your eyes and see. You have missed the reality of the world, that the fields are white for harvest, and the very person you think will never believe is more ready than you think. So I think we need to say goodbye to the days of accidental evangelism of forever putting off that life-saving decision in someone else's life, but to acknowledge the Lord's word that sowing and reaping are both together intentional labor and faith. And that if we are to be his people, then we must be involved in leading people to Jesus Christ. Wherever that meets you in your personal life right now, I'm going to ask you if in the next couple minutes, 
you would respond to what God has been saying to you. And if he leads you to make a commitment, have courage and let him lead you to that commitment. It may be a crazy commitment, but he is strong enough to honor it in your life. So let's go to prayer and respond to God right now. I believe that even before evangelism is a ministry of speaking and doing it is first in a ministry of having our own hearts changed remember what I said about Charlie Sheen I ask you when you see broken people what do you see do we see what we're supposed to see Or do we see as a fallen world sees? Before we can bring the gospel, our own hearts must be broken with love that comes from Jesus Christ. I think that's a prayer all of us can pray together this morning. Soften my heart, God, for I find it too easy to judge or to be callous towards a dying world. And I need you to break my heart. Why don't we all just pray that prayer together right now? And then I'll close for us. Lord Jesus, why is it so easy for us to go to bed every night knowing that all around us are people who will spend eternity without you? Come and wake up dead hearts I pray that your Holy Spirit would bother our spirits so much in the days to come that we will no longer be able to ignore the lost around us give us courage in the sowing, but even in the reaping. Give us courage to speak of you, to invite people to you. I pray, Lord, this year that every Christian at Harvest would share in the joy of leading someone to new life in Jesus Christ. That is a crazy thing to pray, but we prayed in bold faith Make this true of our church. This year, whether we have sown or reaped, give every last one of us the joy and privilege of being part of someone else's coming alive in Christ. I pray that you will do this and awaken a sleeping church. And I pray that you would change our own hearts so that we will no longer sit in mockery and judgment over a messed up world. But our hearts will break with yours and we will be your voice and your hands and feet. We pray that you will do this through us and you will save many. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.